Stanley Kubrick's 2001 A Space Odyssey has to have the most spectacular opening of any movie ever. If you haven't seen 2001, please, please do not stream it on your pitiful six-inch iPhone. Uh, go to the TIFF light box, the big screen, and see it in 70 millimeter next time it comes through town. You'll thank me for it. Uh, here's how it begins, very famously, over the triumphant swelling of Richard Strauss's Thus Spake Zarathustra. So, da, 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 ba -bum. Right, the sun and the moon and the earth vertically align in 70 millimeter widescreen harmony. And the viewer immediately knows this movie is going to be epic. The Apostle John, he begins his gospel in the same way. His scope is gargantuan. In the first 18 verses, what's called John's prologue, we read of the most glorious epochal event yet in God's gracious plan to save an undeserving rebellious people from the penalty and the power of their sin, unite them to his son, and fill them with his spirit for all eternity. God becomes a man. Or as John writes in verse 14, the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. John's gospel is the book of the Bible where we most clearly see the truth of what we sing at Christmas. Veiled in flesh, the Godhead see. Hail the incarnate deity. And this event... God becomes a man is something wonderful, something radically new in the history of salvation. And yet, as new as it is, uh, it's intricately connected with what's come before in Israel's history, a history we read about in the Old Testament. And a first century Jew reading the first 18 verses of John's gospel or, or Gentiles like us, New City, people who know our Old Testament, recognize themes related to the tabernacle and temple and God dwelling in the midst of his people. Uh, themes related to the promises of the new covenant of Jeremiah 31 and Ezekiel 36. Themes such as the glory of God, a divine glory which moves from between the golden cherubim on top of the atonement cover of the Ark of the Covenant to beholding the glory of God in Jesus Christ on the cross. That's where this passage, and eventually the entire Gospel of John, is taking us. And many of the central thematic words of this book are first introduced in these opening verses. Light and life in verse 4. Witness in verse 7. True in the sense of genuine or ultimate in verse 9. World, that is the moral order in rebellion against the creator God in verse 10. Glory and truth in verse 14. If you have your bulletins, look at where I've written the big picture. Supremely, the prologue summarizes how the word, which was with God in the very beginning, came into the sphere of time, history, tangibility. In other words, how the Son of God was sent 
into the world to become the Jesus of history so that the glory and grace of God might be uniquely and perfectly disclosed. The rest of the book is nothing other than an expansion of this theme. In other words, John's prologue sets the stage for what comes. Uh, It's the foyer or the foyer, if you're American. Uh, As N.T. Wright describes it, it's like the great doorway into a great building. Friend, do you want to get to the very heart of who Jesus is and what his heavenly father sent him into this world to do, to accomplish? Then this book of the Bible, this sermon series is for you. And that goes for Christian and non-Christian alike. This sermon series is for people who are not interested in what the culture or the media or various religions say concerning Jesus and his mission, but what Jesus himself has to say about that. And for some here today, this may be good news that you've, you've never heard before. Uh, this may be revelation from God that you did not previously know. And it's this church's prayer that having heard this good news proclaimed, you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name, eternal life. For others, for Christians, the Christians here today, this will be an opportunity to realign our perspective. Every year, I take our car to the garage and have the wheels realigned. They've been knocked off a few degrees of perfect center from hitting potholes and such. Beloved, I want this sermon series to realign our perspective on Jesus Christ. I want all of us to worshipfully appreciate with greater biblical precision our Lord and Savior Jesus, the eternal word made flesh. I want us to understand better his exalted person, what he's done for us supremely in his cross, and what we must do, how we must live in response. And so we begin by entering through John's foyer, his 18-verse prologue. Verse 1, in the beginning. Okay, stop. (laughs) Where have we heard that before? What, What does that verse remind us of, that phrase remind us of? The first verse of the first book in the Bible, Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And this phrase, in the beginning, was widely known to Jewish readers, obviously. If I were to say, um, to boldly go where no man has gone before, if you're a baby boomer at least, you'd start thinking of laser guns and spaceships and Captain Kirk. It's a cultural trigger, right? It reminds us of Star Trek. That's what that reference is. Um, I'm Generation X, by the way, just so you know. But, it, but in the beginning is a literary trigger, and immediately people who know their Old Testaments, they know exactly what period of time is being referenced here. Both in Genesis 1 and in John chapter 1, the context shows that the beginning is absolute, the absolute beginning. This is the beginning of all things. This is the beginning of the universe, the creation of the universe. All right, so we're, we're just three words in. So far, so good. But again, you're seeing how epic a beginning this is. In the beginning, 
was the word. Okay, what does that mean? The word. Could that be, maybe it's, maybe it's the Bible. That sounds possible. After all, we read, uh, after we read a text of scripture at New City, we say, uh, this is the word of the Lord. So let's just keep reading. We'll see if that pans out. In the beginning was the word. And the word was with God. And the word was God. All right, so that shows we're definitely on the wrong track. It's not talking about the Bible. The Bible is not divine. Uh, The Bible is revelation from God, but the Bible is not God himself. So what's John saying? Why does he begin his gospel like this? The first book of scripture I read after the Lord saved me when I was 21 was the gospel of John. I uh, I remember being staggered by what I read. Uh, My parents were believers, so I had been exposed to the Bible and its teachings all my life. Uh, But it was this hour we were reading John for the first time. Uh, I know I wasn't, but that's what it felt like because I had had new eyes. I had had a new heart now at 21 as I'm reading this almost like for the first time, it seemed. Um, And I just couldn't get over how explicit Jesus was, his own testimony about himself and his divine authority. It's over and over and over again. And if you've read John's gospel straight through, then you know he holds nothing back. He says a lot on that front. And, and people get upset. <laughs> and, uh, but I wanted my friends to know all about this. And uh, so a King James only brother at my church gave me a stack of little KGV Gospel of John booklets. And in my innocence, I just, I just gave them about these Gospel of John KGV booklets to all my friends, and I asked them to get in contact with me if they had any questions. Uh, I don't think anyone ever did, uh, but I remember feeling very frustrated that the first verse of John's Gospel was pretty much incomprehensible. Uh, it wasn't even comprehensible to me, the Christian who was handing it out to my friends. So why on earth... Does John start off his gospel like this? We have to read actually down a number of verses before we understand who John's even talking about. Oh, John's writing about Jesus. Jesus is the word, the one with God in the beginning, the one who is God through whom all things were made. Why doesn't he just say so plainly? Why not write this? In the beginning was God the Son which means there never was a time when God the Son was not. God the Son was before all else. And the Son was with God. He is God's own fellow. He is God's own peer. The Son by himself does not make up the entire Godhead. And the Son was God. That is, he is God's own self. He is God. Why not just write that and save us all a really big headache and we can hand out the Gospel of John without a second thought? Well, John certainly could have written things like that. All of that's true. But by calling Jesus the word, John is obviously, he's making a point. And the whole point is that we pick up on that point. So think of a a freight train uh, moving from Labrador to British Columbia. As the train progresses on its journey, it takes on more freight. The empty cars are filled with more stuff as the train moves across the country. Well, by John using this term word, uh, we get a more complete picture actually of who Jesus is because that term is weighted down with theological freight as God's plan of salvation 
unfolds over time. Freight that would have been obvious to any first century Jew who knew the scripture. So look at your bulletin again. You can see a a Don Carson quote under point number one. God's word in the Old Testament is his powerful self-disclosure in creation, revelation, and deliverance. And the personification of that term makes it appropriate for John to apply it to Jesus, God's ultimate self-disclosure. See, that's the key to understanding verse 1. So let's just break that down. First, God's word in the Old Testament is his powerful self-disclosure in creation. That means God speaks and the universe is created. In Genesis chapter 1, we read a constant refrain, And God said, Let there be light, sky, land, vegetation, the sun, the moon, animals, and it was so. God speaks creation into existence through the power of his word. And by the time we come to Psalm 33, verse 6, the way is open to personify this term. The psalmist writes, By the word of the Lord, the heavens were made. That's Psalm 33, 6. By the word of the Lord, the heavens were made. So we see in the Old Testament, that the Word is God's agent in creation. But also, in the Old Testament, the Word is God's agent in revelation. So alongside the statement in Isaiah 7-3 that the Lord said certain things to his prophet, we're also told that the, the Word of the Lord came to Isaiah, chapter 38, verse 4. So the Lord said to Isaiah, the Word of the Lord came to Isaiah which means that both terms, actually, they mean the same thing, but the latter use can be pictured as a messenger sent by God to the prophet. The word of the Lord came to Isaiah, which doesn't mean, all right, doesn't mean Jesus himself came to Isaiah the prophet, but the term, the word, is picking up freight within the Jewish culture through salvation history now. So when John comes to use it in reference to Jesus, there's already a pre-understanding a pre-understanding that the word in the Old Testament is connected with God's powerful activity in creation and in revelation. And elsewhere, biblical writers speak of God sending forth his word to heal and to help and to transform his people. God's word affects deliverance. It affects judgment. Listen to Psalm 107, verses 19 to 20. Then they cried to the Lord in their trouble, and he saved them from their distress. He sent out his word and healed them. He rescued them from the grave. So if we put all of that together, we look at this Old Testament picture, God's word in the Old Testament scriptures is his powerful self-disclosure in creation, in revelation, and in deliverance. And John thinks to himself, yes, that summarizes all of who Jesus is. Jesus is God's self-expression. Jesus is God's revelation. He is God's own agent in creation, and he comes to save and transform God's people. He is the Word. But John's saying something else, too. The evangelist insists that this Word... God's divine self-expression was both with God in the beginning, the absolute beginning, and was God. 
And that, friends, is full-blown Trinitarianism. The biblical teaching that there is one God eternally coexisting in three co-eternal, co-equal persons. The Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, and Jesus is the second person of the triune Godhead. Our, Our mind boggles at the concept, but it's true. And this is the theological biography of the earthly ministry of the second person of the triune God. The eternal word made flesh. You know, the rest of John's gospel must be read in light of this opening verse. As C.K. Barrett writes, the deeds and words of Jesus are the deeds and words of the eternal God. If this is not true, the book is blasphemous. And John is the most explicit of all the gospel writers concerning the deity of Jesus, which is why it's usually the gospel of John. Christians have people read if they're interested in learning more about uh, the Christian faith. This is the book that uh, Christian campus groups hand out to people during Frosh Week. Uh, This is the book of the Bible we tell new believers to read first or the skeptic, or the seeker. Read John's gospel. But it's, it's astonishing, isn't it? Right out of the gate, John's readers are learning about the eternality, tri-unity, and deity of Jesus. Verse 1. This is, this is glorious, gargantuan stuff. But then we ask, well, what's going on here? How can we think in these sorts of terms about this carpenter from Nazareth? How can Jesus, in speaking of himself, say things like, He who comes to me will never go hungry, and he who believes in me will never be thirsty. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Whoever enters through me will be saved. He who believes in me will live even though he dies. And whoever lives and believes in me will never die. No one comes to the Father except through me. What what would you think if I stood up here behind this pulpit and talked like that about myself? Moses never talked like that. Muhammad never talked like that. Gautama the Buddha, Confucius, they never, ever talked like that. But Jesus talks like that, and he can talk like that with a straight face. And John faithfully records it all that we might believe. Who is this man? There's a famous quote by C.S. Lewis. Perhaps you've heard it. A man who is merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level with a man who says he is a poached egg, or he would be the devil of hell. You must take your choice. Either this was and is the son of God or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. 
But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. Or as Tim Keller tweeted last week, Jesus cannot be just liked. His claims make us either kill him or crown him. How then should we think of Jesus in these sorts of terms? John explains in point number two what John says about the word. The word creates us, the word gives us light and life, and the word confronts and divides us. Now, if you haven't caught on already, I'll just tell you, John's prologue is dense. Uh, This is a text with some serious theological complexity to it, uh, so we need to pay very close attention. Uh, But as well, none of this is just merely abstract. This isn't just for the theological eggheads. Uh, John, the evangelist, is pushing all of us to make a decision about Jesus, to believe in him, uh, to not reject Jesus, and so die in our sins. Take it or leave it, friends. Believe it or deny it. Jesus says eternal life, salvation from sin, deliverance from God's justice is wrapped up in our evaluation of his claims and his person. What you think of Christ is the test. Very quickly, just flip ahead to uh, chapter 8, verse 21. Once more, Jesus said to them, I am going away and you will look for me and you will die in your sin. Where I go, you cannot come. This made the Jews ask, will he kill himself? Is that why he says, where I go, you cannot come? But he continued, you are from below. I am from above. You are of this world. I am not of this world. I told you that you would die in your sins if you do not believe that I am he, that I am God in the context here, you will indeed die in your sins. Who are you? They asked. Just what I've been telling you from the beginning, Jesus replied. I have much to say in judgment of you. But he who sent me, that is God the Father, is trustworthy. And what I have heard from him, I tell the world. New City, God the Holy Spirit, through the writings of the Apostle John, is pushing all of us to evaluate ourselves in the light of God's ultimate revelation, the eternal word. So I need you to have your Bible open on your lap or your Bible app on And I want you to pray, and I'm speaking now to any unbelievers, to any non-Christians with us today in particular. Uh, Friend, you, you must humble yourself before God and pray that God, the Holy Spirit, would grant you spiritual life and understanding. That you might believe what God has disclosed to the world in the Bible about Jesus. First, the word creates us. Verse 3. Positively, through him, all things were made. Negatively, without him, nothing was made that has been made. So that means if it exists, it was created by the eternal word. Everything, everything owes its existence to Jesus without exception. 
survey every square inch of this universe from the nuclear furnace interiors of a trillion suns and a billion galaxies to those beautiful translucent jellyfish living at the bottom of the Arctic Ocean, Jesus created it all. The Apostle Paul writes in Colossians 1.15, The sun is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For in him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Which means we are created by Jesus. You are created by Jesus Christ. So what John is doing in this verse is he's forcing all of us to recognize our creatureliness. We're creatures. And maybe that's going to require you to completely dismantle and overhaul your present worldview and to confess in faith that you did not evolve by mere natural processes out of primordial slime, but that you are created by God. That you are not an autonomous being. You are created by the eternal word. Because this fact, for all of us, grounds our responsibility before God. God made us, which means we owe him. We have an obligation toward the God whose image we bear. Worshipful obedience. Anything less is idolatrous rebellion. It's a wicked suppression of the truth. It's it's a denial of our creatureliness and it's an attempt to de-God God. We all owe God worshipful obedience. How do we dare shake our puny little fist in God's face and our creator's face? Who is our creator? Jesus, the eternal word. You know what this text feels like to me? It feels like we're, we're peeping over the edge of the Grand Canyon. Or maybe the, the event horizon of a black hole. It's just there. It feels like we're standing on the edge, the precipice of something massive, something extraordinarily important. And we either believe, we either take God at his word, or we, we walk forward in autonomous rebellion and plummet to our doom. The Apostle John is asking, which is it going to be? The second thing the Apostle says about the word, the word gives us light and life, verses 4 to 8. And I'm following Carson closely at this point. He does a good job, I think, of distilling things into a comprehensible form. Let's just imagine for a moment that you've never read the Gospel of John before. Let's imagine this is all completely new, which, which may be the case for someone here today. All we know about this book of the Bible is what I've covered so far in the sermon, verses 1 through 3. That's it, right? Now we come to verses 4 and 5. What would we naturally assume John is writing about? Let's just get the flow of the context from verse 3. Through him, all things were made. Without him, nothing was made that has been made. So that's talking about creation, right? 
So with that theme in mind, then we move into verse 4. In him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. And and those verses fit very well into a a creation context, don't they? Uh, The eternal word has life in himself, and he gives life to all human beings. That That was their light. So before him there was darkness, and then the eternal word introduced light. There was the darkness of nothingness before he created everything. And after creation, there was light and there was life. So that makes sense. But then we read verses 6 and following. There was a man sent from John whose name there was a, there was a man sent from God whose name was John, that is John the Baptist. And just people beware, okay? There are two Johns in this book. There is John the apostle, John the evangelist, one of the 12 disciples of Jesus, the man who wrote this gospel. And then there's John the Baptist, the man who is John's uh, Jesus personal prophet. And we'll learn more about John the Baptist next Sunday, Lord willing. Plus, to add to confusion, there's John Bell, the pastor, preaching the text. So don't get us confused. Verse 6, there was a man sent from God whose name was John, John the Baptist. He came as a witness to testify concerning that light so that through him, through John the Baptist, all might believe. He himself was not the light. He came only as a witness to the light. So it's plain to see, as we're moving along through the text, this theme of light is picking up more and more freight. Uh, We're beginning to see how light has overtones, not just a physical creation light, that, you know, but actually, the, it, there's now an overtone of revelation here, isn't there? Uh, John the Apostle is speaking of divine truth light that's being revealed to the world, divine truth light to which John the Baptist bears witness and which people must believe. Verse 5 reads, The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it, or some Bibles translate it, the darkness has not understood it. You could make a good argument for either translation. And as we read on in John's Gospel, this revelatory association with light becomes clear and clear. It's a major, major theme in his Gospel, and it begins to take on a moral dimension. Uh, light is often contrasted in John's Gospel with darkness, but it's moral light, moral darkness. Uh, let me just share with you one of my pet peeves. And uh, this is the sort of thing that my poor wife, Jill, hears from me ad nauseum. Uh, but I'd like to share it with you now. <laughs> uh, I've never understood why some people are disinclined to read a great book more than once. I don't get that. Uh, I'll, I'll ask someone, have you ever read such and such a literary masterpiece? And they'll respond, oh, yeah, I read that book back when I was 17. I'm 45 years old now. I'm a completely different person but I still remember how the book ends, so I'll never read it again because that would just be a waste of time. Which of you, who does that? <laughs> to my thinking, that's just crazy. Um, isn't, isn't that like saying, kind of? I, I heard Beethoven's Ninth Symphony once when I was 13, so I'll never listen to it again. Or I saw that painting once, or I, I watched that movie once, so I'll never look at it, or I'll never watch it ever, ever again. The Apostle John, he expects us to read his eyewitness theological biography of the eternal word more than once. This isn't just some cheap paperback we pick up at the drugstore and then throw in the trash once we're done reading it. He expects us to read it more than one time. 
So what John does, expecting us to read it again, is he introduces us to themes in his prologue, which he then unpacks later in the book. And light and life are two of those themes. They're both included, actually, in Jesus' famous I am sayings. Uh, Chapter 8, verse 12. I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Now, contrast that with chapter 3, verse 19. People love darkness instead of light because their deeds are evil. Everyone who does evil hates the light and will not come into the light for fear that their deeds will be exposed. But whoever lives by the truth comes into the light so that it may be seen plainly that what they have done has been done in the sight of God. Now go back and reread John chapter 1 verses 4 and 5 with all that in mind. In him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. The light shines in the darkness, the darkness of corruption and rebellion, and the darkness has not overcome it. So we're seeing that other overtone here, aren't we? Here the light is revelation and truth from God, truth that is overcoming the darkness of moral corruption and, and moral ignorance. That means we're getting two pictures at once in John's prologue. The word, the eternal word, Jesus, is the agent of physical life and light at the time of creation. He is God's agent in creation. And Jesus is the one who brings revelation and transformation, overcoming moral darkness. They're both true. We're supposed to read it both ways. We just have to read John's gospel more than once to see it. And if both those sayings are true, then just think about what that is saying about Jesus Christ. John's just getting started. We're just five verses into things here. Verse 6. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. That is John the Baptist. He came as a witness to testify concerning that light so that through him, through John the Baptist, all might believe. He himself was not the light. He came only as a witness to the light. John the Baptist, which means Jehovah has been gracious, has been commissioned um, by God for the purpose of testifying about Jesus. Uh, John the Baptist is Jesus' personal prophet. And the Baptist's intention is that all who hear his testimony might embrace Jesus by a living faith. Jesus is the light that has come into the world, and John the Baptist is, is the reflector of that light. So think of it when it's nighttime and it's pitch dark, yet there's the moon shining in the sky. How is that possible? The moon does not emanate light, does it? It's just a big dead rock in the sky. Why is it so bright? It's because it's reflecting the light of the sun. And John testifies concerning Jesus like the moon testifies concerning the sun. He himself was not the light. He came only as a witness to the light, as is every Christian here. We, too, testify concerning this light so that through us all might believe. And that's going to be the major point of application in next week's sermon, Lord willing. But the response to John's testimony, to our testimony, as it confronts people in their sin, it's polarized. The response is polarized. 
because Jesus himself confronts and divides people. And this is the third thing the Apostle John tells us about the word in verses 9 through 13. The true light that gives light to everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world, and though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. What an indictment. Verse 11, he came to that which was his own, his own home, but his own, that is his own people, did not receive him. God, becoming a man, did not guarantee a universal revival with everyone turning to him in faith. Even if people did see the light, they're ashamed in Jesus' presence. And they prefer the darkness to the light. Their evil deeds are exposed. He exposes them. Even today, the bulk of people, of people do not respond. They flee from the light, lest their deeds should be exposed. But some, some did receive this revelation. Verse 12. Yet to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, because receiving the word of God means to place our faith in Jesus. It means yielding our allegiance to Jesus and acknowledging his claims over us. Do you think of Jesus in that way, that he has claims over you and that you have to give your allegiance to him? Is that how you think of Christ? Yet to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. And these people and these people alone enjoy the privilege of becoming God's covenant people. Verse 13, children born not of natural descent. Being, being Jewish has nothing to do with it. Nor of human decision. God is sovereign in salvation. No one decides of their own accord, I will be a child of God today. Or a husband's will. Because in this day and culture, it was understood that the husband took the lead in sexual matters. And this isn't some natural birth John's referring to, but born of God. And with verse 13, John introduces us to the glorious theme of the new birth, being born again, born from above, born by God's spirit, a new blessing of the new covenant a covenant which Jesus will ratify in his blood and which Jesus famously explains to the Pharisee Nicodemus in chapter 3. But that's another sermon for another day. John's just introducing us to the concept here, then he unpacks it later on. What we need to know for today is this. These children of God, these new covenant members who have received Jesus and who have believed in his name, they are not simply humanly born. They're born of God. They're different from the rest of the world because God has done something new in them. This is new creation. This is new birth. God is starting something over in them. And they truly believe who Jesus really is. That's going to be a portrait that the Apostle John paints over the next 21 chapters. Christians will affirm that portrait is true. It's genuine. That is the Jesus of history. And now with verse 14, everything comes to a glorious head. We come now to the Mount Everest of our passage this morning. Verse 14, the word became flesh. 
Brothers and sisters, this verse shows us the supreme revelation of God. Here we find no stables, no shepherds, there's no wise men, there's no angels, but the eternal word, God's own self-expression, God's own self-disclosure, becomes a human being. The eternal word, without ceasing to be the word, and therefore God's own peer, God's own self, becomes a man, fully God, fully man. Not that he assumed the likeness of a man or, or that he somehow possessed a human body like an avatar puppet, but God became a man. The word became flesh. God fully dawned our humanity, except for our sin. And this human being, as the rest of the chapter shows and the rest of John's gospel testifies, is Jesus. And what John does next for four verses is unpack the significance of the biblical historical truth that the word of John chapter 1 indeed became flesh. And this event, God becoming a man, is something wonderful. It's something radically new in the history of salvation. And yet, as new as it is, it's intricately connected with what's come before in Israel's history. Now, you'll recall that in the chapters of the Old Testament book of Exodus that we read this morning, we had the account of Moses coming down from the mountain with the Ten Commandments in his hands, only to find the nation of Israel engaged in an orgy of idolatry. The last four verses of John's prologue, verses 14 to 18, all come out of that text. Exodus 32 to 34. That's why I read it. That's the background. And John picks up five major themes from those chapters in Exodus, which I've listed in your bulletin. These five themes unpack the significance of the truth that the word became flesh. And three of the five come from verse 14. Verse 1 and verse 14 are really, they're the twin crowns of John's prologue. And the first theme is this, see in your bulletin, tabernacle and temple. Verse 14, the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. And the Greek word rendered dwelling in our NIV Bibles uses the same root for the word tabernacle. The Greek could just as well be rendered, he tabernacled among us. Now, how would a verse like that resonate with a Jewish reader? He made his dwelling among us. He tabernacled among us. What's the first thing a biblically literate Jew will think of? The tabernacle of God set up at the time of Sinai. Uh, the tabernacle with the Holy of Holies, where only the high priest could enter on behalf of himself and everybody else once a year with the blood of the sacrifices. The great meeting place that brought together a holy God and his rebellious image bearers. The tabernacle was that meeting place. Uh, that's what the tabernacle was until Solomon's temple replaced it. But now we're told in verse 14b that when the word became flesh, he tabernacled among us. Beloved, that's not some throwaway line. 
That, that, that has significance, great, tremendous significance. And in the John's next chapter, chapter 2, Jesus will insist that he is the ultimate temple of God, the ultimate meeting place between human beings and God. It's as if he's saying, if rebels are going to be reconciled to the holy God who created them and to whom they stand accountable, they must come to him by means of the temple that God has ordained. And I am the temple. The eternal word became flesh and tabernacled among us. Again, we're going to look at this more in depth in the weeks to come. Uh, The second theme, glory, 14b. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only son, full of grace and truth. What was it that Moses asked in Exodus 33, 18? Then Moses said to God, now show me your glory. And how did the Lord respond? I will cause all my goodness to pass in front of you because God's glory, that attribute, which is distinctly his, is his goodness. And I will proclaim my name, Yahweh, in your presence. And John plays with this theme of glory throughout the entire book. It comes up over and over again. In John 2, for example, when Jesus performs his first miracle, he turns water into wine at the wedding in Cana in Galilee. Uh, We're told that at the end of the account in verse 11, that the disciples saw what? His glory. Uh, The other people at the wedding, they saw a miracle which is pretty impressive, water into wine. That's amazing. But the disciples saw Jesus' glory. That doesn't mean they saw a blazing halo of light over Jesus' head. It means that, that they saw that this was a sign with significance. The miracle signified something about who Jesus truly was. They saw Jesus' glory. And this use of glory is repeated throughout John's gospel. Again, these are themes that he introduces here. He unpacks them later. But he expects us to read his gospel account more than once, so we pick up on this. So by the time we come to John chapter 12, turn there quickly. John chapter 12, we read that Jesus will manifest God's glory by going to the cross. It's all leading here. Look at John 12, 23. Jesus replied, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. And this is the overarching context for everything that follows now. Very truly, verse 24, I tell you, unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed. But if it dies, it produces many seeds. Anyone who loves their life will lose it, while everyone who hates their life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Whoever serves me must follow me. And where I am, my servant also will be. My father will honor the one who serves me. Now my soul is troubled. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? No, it was for this very reason I came to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it and will glorify it again. The crowd that was there and heard it said it had thundered. Others said that an angel had spoken. Jesus said, this voice was for your benefit, not mine. Now is the time for judgment on this world. Now the prince of this world will be driven out. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. He said this to show the kind of death he was going to die. Brothers and sisters, where is God's glory most manifested? In God's goodness. When Jesus is 
glorified. When Jesus is lifted up and hung on a cross displaying God's glory in the shame and the degradation and the brutality and sacrifice of his eternal son for sin. The most spectacular display of God's glory in this world that the world has ever seen is in a bloody instrument of torture because that is where God's goodness was most displayed 2,000 years ago. And on that cross, God displayed his glory in Christ Jesus, who became our tabernacle, our temple, the meeting place between God and sinful human beings. Theme three, grace and truth. The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only son who came from the father, full of grace and truth. Again, the background comes from Exodus, uh, Exodus 34, 5 to 7. Then the Lord came down in the cloud and stood there with him and proclaimed his name, the Lord. And he passed in front of Moses, proclaiming Yahweh, Yahweh, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands and forgiving wickedness, rebellion and sin. Yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. He punishes the children and their children for the sins of the parents of the third and fourth generation. When Yahweh intones who he is before Moses, who is hiding in his cave, the Lord describes himself in a variety of ways. Included among them are the words abounding in or full of love and faithfulness. In Hebrew, the original language of the Old Testament account the pair of nouns translated love and faithfulness are equally appropriately rendered grace and truth. You can go either way in translation. John goes with grace and truth. Which means, in Exodus 34, God displays himself not only as the God who will punish sinners, but the God who is full of grace and truth who will forgive sinners. And John, as he's reflecting on who Jesus is, this Jesus who manifests God's goodness, his glory in the cross, John writes that Jesus is full of grace and truth, the grace and truth that brought him to the cross and paid for our sins. Theme four, grace and law. John adds, verse 16, Out of his fullness we have all received grace in place of grace already given. And then the next verse explains what he's talking about. Verse 17, for the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. In other words, the gift of the law covenant was a gracious thing. It was a gracious thing that was happening at Mount Sinai. It was a good and it was a wonderful gift from God. But the grace and truth par excellence came through Jesus Christ, not in the display of glory to Moses in the cave, but in the display of Jesus and the bloody sacrifice of his cross. The law covenant was a gracious gift from God, but now Jesus is going to introduce a new covenant, the ultimate grace and truth. And this is a grace that replaces that old grace. It's bound up with the new covenant. Finally, theme five, seeing God. Verse 18, no one has ever seen God. What did God say in Exodus 33:20? He told Moses, "You cannot see my face, 
for no one may see me and live. Now John adds an exception, but the one and only Son, who is himself God, and is in closest relationship with the Father, has made him known. <clears throat> Dear friends, do you, do you hear what that, those wonderful words are saying? No one has ever seen God, and God in all of his transcendent splendor, we still cannot see until the last day. But the eternal word who was with God in the beginning and who is himself God became flesh. God became a human being. Jesus is God and we can see him. This is why Jesus later says to one of his own disciples, don't you know me, Philip, even after I've been among you such a long time, anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. John 14, 9. Again, who else says such a thing? Anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. Friend, have you ever wondered what God is like? Do you want to know what the character of God is like? The holiness of God? The love of God? The forgiveness of God? Do you want to know what the glory of God is like? Then look at Jesus. Believe in him. Receive him. Behold his glory, which as we'll see in the coming weeks, is supremely manifested in his cross. Look to Jesus and see God. And know this. To all who receive Jesus, to those who believe in Jesus' name, God gives them the right to become children of God. Children born not of natural descent, nor of human decision, but born of God. Amen.